Real stories, reliable information, the latest technology and news. Welcome to the Plastic Surgery Hub podcast, connecting people with practitioners. Good morning, listeners. It's Trish Hammond here again from Transform Bodies. And today I'm joined with Dr. Raymond Goh, who's a specialist plastic surgeon based in Brisbane. And he works um, at Valley Plastic Surgery, which is pretty much in the heart of, um, or yeah, in the valley, basically. And today we're going to talk about um, functional rhinoplasty versus cosmetic rhinoplasty. So he's going to give us a bit of a rundown. So this is a question that we get asked a lot, like when is it, you know, aesthetic and when is it functional? Because sometimes it's actually both. So um, yeah, so he's going to give us a bit of a rundown of that today. So welcome, Dr. Go. Good morning, everyone. Well, good evening, everyone. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Whenever you're listening to this. Hey? Yeah. So tell us, I, I know at the moment, of course, we'll start with we're doing business differently for, for the moment because of what's happening with COVID-19. Um, so, of course, I know that you're doing um, um, teleconsults as well, and we're going to be chatting about rhinoplasty. But can you tell us a little bit just before we start, like, so what are you actually doing at the moment yeah, in, in your um, clinic? So COVID-19 has really changed things for every plastic surgeon, every surgeon, everybody really, um, including myself and everyone within our practice. At the moment, um, I'm still doing category one and urgent category two procedures such as cancer type operations and removal of um, implants um, with patients who have breast implant complications. But anything that's elective um, has been delayed and not been done. So I am doing a lot of virtual consults um, through video links with patients. So I'm spending a lot of time in my office doing video links with patients for new consultations for um, all types of plastic surgical procedures. And I find it's very, very helpful because a lot of times patients will still come back to see me for a second time to confirm surgical plans and discuss and confirm goals. So the first consultation, which we're doing via video link, I can cover 90% of everything that needs to be discussed, minus the physical examination, the measurements, the confirmation of surgical plans. So by the time we finish our uh, virtual consult, we pretty much know 90% uh, of what we're planning to do in terms of our surgical plan. And then the patient will come back and see me for a second quicker consultation so that they can have any of their questions answered and we can confirm our surgical plan. So I'm finding it very effective. Um, and like I said, it, it pretty much 90% of what we need to do in the consultation is covered off other than the physical examination and um, measurements. Well, it actually makes so much sense because, um, and in a way, I, I actually really like it because I know that whenever I've had surgery, I've had that initial consult, but then when you actually go back like on the day of surgery, it's almost like another consult as well anyway. So it's, you know, it's kind of like, um, you know, because I've made notes and think, okay, well, this is what's going to happen. And then when I've gone back to have my surgery, um, the doctor has just kind of done the same, virtually the same consult, just not spent as much time. So it, it's actually not a bad thing at all. Yeah, no, I find it's great. And I find patients, are, <laughs> they actually look more comfortable being in their home uh, looking into their smartphone screen or the computer screen. They, they look much more comfortable than sitting in front of a, a specialist. 
and um, they have a chance to take down all the notes that they want to have a chance to record our discussion. Um, they don't feel as nervous. And um, I, I actually find that a lot of the patients that I've done virtual consults with have actually very much appreciated um, the process. I, I totally agree. I don't think it's a bad thing at all. And it gives us all a chance to take a, um, a bit of a, a breath, I suppose, in a way. And, and I spoke to um, one of a lady, a practice manager in one of the clinics, and um, I said to her, "What are you doing?" She goes, "I am so busy just doing all the things that we could never do when when people are around. So people are kind of sorting things out and you know tidying up their backyard, I guess, so to speak." Mm -hmm. Yeah, a lot of patients are, are finding it very convenient because to come into a specialist office, they have to almost take half a day off. Um, whereas a lot of the virtual consults I've been doing, um, some of the patients are vacuuming whilst they're doing the consult with me or they're in the office and just taking half an hour uh, tea break to do the virtual consult. So from a convenience perspective, it's quite effective as well. Oh my God, I love that. Vacuuming while they're doing the consult. I love it's that. It's a bit noisy. <laughs> <laughs> oh, wow. So, so tell me, um, now this, is, this next topic is really close to my heart because um, uh, my, my son has a bit of an issue, which I know that we're going to come and um, see you about in a couple of weeks. But can you tell us, so what's the diff when is the rhinoplasty functional and when is it cosmetic? Because like, I'll give you an example, because like my, my son, um, he, was, um, he, had, he was attacked when he was visiting overseas by a couple of guys and, and he got beat up pretty badly and he was kicked in the head a few times mm -hmm. and, and whatnot. And um, like, I know that his nose is bigger. And I was like, mm -hmm. the other day I said to him, wow, mate, your nose is just, he goes, I know it's so much bigger than it ever mm -hmm. was. He goes, but I can't breathe on one side. I'm like, why didn't you tell me that before? Mm. But he goes, oh, just, you know, it's just the way it is. So some people mm. don't realise that, you, you know, like a nose needs to be functional. Like a lot of people don't actually realise that. They just accept that as part of, you know, oh, well, that's just the way it is. Yeah. Trish, that is a very good question and a good topic because um, it's, it's such an important one. I would say in my practice, 70% of patients have both cosmetic as well as functional issues that need to be addressed with their nose. And the thing is, a lot of people come in thinking it's just a cosmetic aspect. When you examine them and question them carefully, they actually have a functional um, defect there that needs to be addressed as well. So when we talk about function and functional issues in a nose in relation to a rhinoplasty, essentially the key word there is breathing. Um, when it's a pure cosmetic case, the patient may have a hump on their nose that they want to get off or a tip's a bit big, they want to refine that, and it's completely cosmetic. There's no breathing issues. So the first question I ask the patients when they walk in is, do you have any issues with your breathing? Now, that's a trick question in inverted commas as well because when they say no, I will then examine them and sometimes I can pick up breathing issues that the patient may not even realize they have had because they've lived with it for so long. Mm -hmm. So essentially a cosmetic rhinoplasty is essentially no breathing issues whatsoever and it's purely to improve the looks of the nose. Whereas a functional rhinoplasty, um, we may be addressing the appearance of the nose as well, but at the same time, we need to address the breathing issues that the patient can, can, has, has. And so most patients, like I said, 70% of the patients that come to see me 
um, have both aesthetic as well as functional because they go hand in hand, such as the example that you've mentioned of your son. If they've had trauma to their nose, they're going to have a deviated nose, a hump on their nose, a crooked nose, um, a bigger nose, um, collapsed hooked tip, a floppy tip, and they're going to have a deviation of the septum, which is the central cartilage within the nose. They're going to have this cartilage bent towards one side or the other, or both sides, causing breathing obstructions. So that's a typical example, the one that you've mentioned, of someone with both functional as well as aesthetic concerns to their nose. I think as a rhinoplasty surgeon these days, you cannot be simply a functional surgeon or an aesthetic surgeon. You have to be able to address um, and hit a home run with both aspects. You're absolutely right. And on that, so when, because I know that um, like automatically in my mind, I would think if I can't, breathe or like the doctor said, okay, you need to go and see an ear, nose and throat specialist. Um, so when, when would someone like, how do people know that, oh, maybe I don't need an ENT. Maybe I can see a plastic surgeon to, even though they may not think they have an, you know, an issue with um, the way it looks, there could be, you know, surely there'd be something that you could do different to an ENT. Would that be right? Or am I off the mark? Yeah, um, no. Um, rhinoplasty um, as a group, as a, as a subspecialty, um, is covered by both ENT surgeons as well as plastic surgeons, um, as well as a group called facial plastic surgeons who are um, composed of ENT and plastic groups. Um, as I mentioned before, I think if you're a nose surgeon, you should be able to address both the functional and aesthetic um, uh, concerns that the patient has. There are a few things whereby... I will refer a patient to see an ENT surgeon. For example, if they have sinus issues, then that's beyond the nose and anything that's beyond the nose structure itself, I would refer to an ENT surgeon because that's beyond my scope of practice, beyond my experience. So that's when an ENT surgeon would be able to fix that. Now, if it's purely a functional issue, such as they have a bent septum and they have absolutely no concerns with their um, appearance, then oftentimes these patients will go straight to an ENT surgeon um, to have it, because traditionally it has been an ENT field where they simply address the functional issue. The important point there is that when you have even just a purely functional issue, so for example, in a deviated septum, the surgery to fix that has to be done carefully as well. For example, if you have a deviated septum and you have a pure septoplasty where you don't address any of the external structures of the nose and purely address the internal septum, if too much septum is taken out, that can result in a collapse and a secondary cosmetic issue. And that is one of the common presentations um, that I receive so in patients who've had a functional problem, had an operation on the septum, they've lost support to their nose, and the nasal tip has collapsed and fallen and, and now they need an aesthetic correction to their nose. Um, so um, to answer your question, both the NT surgeons and plastic surgeons, as long as they're experienced um, in the field of rhinoplasty, has had extra training on top of their specialist training, 
has a special interest in rhinoplasty are able to address both the cosmetic as well as the functional issues. But there are certain um, conditions such as sinusitis um, that are addressed purely by ENT surgeons. Um, sometimes if it's just a functional issue such as the bent septum, that's oftentimes because of tradition uh, done by ENT surgeons. But I think both ENT and plastic surgeons should be able to address issues of the septum. Yeah. And I'm guessing as well, does it happen the other way around as well? If someone went to an ENT just for a aesthetic thing, you would, I would guess that um, that'd be something more so for a plastic surgeon or it works both ways. It works well. both. Okay. I think it works both ways. There are plenty of, um, within us, our, our group of um, people who are interested in rhinoplasty have a special interest in it. There are both ENT surgeons as well as plastic surgeons um, and because both specialties are trained in the nose. Traditionally, plastic surgeons have more so focused on the aesthetic side of things and traditionally ENT has focused more on the functional side of things. And traditionally, such as our um, forefathers and, and older mentors have had two surgeons within the same operation, one fixing the functional side of things and one fixing the cosmetic side of things, but I think in this day and age, a good rhinoplasty or a nose surgeon should be able, be able to address both. And I think, um, yeah, it's, it's become less of a separation of, of functional surgeon and aesthetic surgeon. And patient just wants to have one operation done by one surgeon and to hit a home run, um, both functionally and aesthetically. Exactly. And you know what, I, I would imagine that because um, I know that, that there was the two surgeons in, in, in the old days, however old mm. the old days is, but, um, and I guess expense wise, it would make far more sense for one surgeon to do it as well. Cause, cause then you haven't got the expense of the two surgeons. Would that be right? I think so. Um, I think that that is a good point. Um, in addition to that, Trish, I think if one surgeon does the operation, there's no questions or doubts about what's the other surgeon going to do. How's that going to affect my part of this operation? There's no, communication issues um, because you know exactly what you're going to do to fix the functional side and how that's going to coalesce with the aesthetic side of things because they will fit hand in hand as an, as a, a way of put, uh, explaining it. I will explain to a patient who has a deviated septum, for example, um, part of the septum is bent into uh, one side of the nasal cavity. I will remove that segment of bent septum, but I'm not going to throw that away as some people have done traditionally because that is gold, um, cartilage graph for, for structural support. And I will use that part that I've taken out to support the, the nose that I'm going to reshape. And I want my nose to be stronger at the end of the case than the beginning of the case, even if it is a smaller, more petite, um, more harmonious nose, it needs to be stronger because every time you do a rhinoplasty, you're already um, disrupting the ligaments and the structural support to the nose. So at the end of the case, you want your nose to be stronger. And so I will use that cartilage graft to support the nose. So instead of throwing anything away, you use what you've removed to rebuild other areas of the nose. Okay, well, that makes so much sense. And can I just ask you, so, and with this procedure, so the process is, um, Referral from a surgeon, uh, sorry, referral from a GP, booking for a consult, and then from there you work out what's wrong and then um, booking for surgery. Mm. 
So what's, what would be the lead time for something like that? Like if someone, cause I know at the moment we don't know, like say for example, like does that fall in category two, category three? And, and for those that don't understand, maybe you can tell us what category two and category three might be. Cause that was just kind of approved yesterday. Yes. By the yeah. Day. It's a, uh, it's uh, fresh news off the press. Um, and there's going to be much more, talk much more talks about what these categorization and which procedure fits into which category because there is a difference between the private sector and the public sector and our society ASPS is currently trying to define which procedures fits into which category but essentially category one is urgent um, more life-threatening procedures such as cancer category two um, anything that's semi-urgent that needs to be done within 90 days um, especially those patients with pain. Category three are those that can wait beyond that 90-day period. Um, and, you know, it's, it's a little bit ill-defined at the moment which procedures fall into that. And obviously there are procedures that are no category at all, such as purely cosmetic procedures. But our society is um, in talks right now to define which procedures belong to which procedure. But the generalisation, uh, what I've just mentioned. I guess as well, even with that, like someone may need the same um, procedure, but maybe someone might be in excruciating pain. And I'll, I'll just use an example, like say, for example, um, um, someone who's got a really bad overhang tummy tuck that's, you know, like, you know, bleeds all the time. And, you know, like that person could actually. Oh, yeah, really absolutely. absolutely. Yeah. It's, um, it's based on a patient-to-patient -patient assessment. Someone like that or someone with a breast reduction uh, who needs a breast reduction uh, who has severe, severe shoulder aches and pains and maybe some ulceration underneath their breast crease, that would immediately raise their, the urgency of their procedures and I would have no hesitation in doing that patient's procedures much sooner as opposed to a patient who's had, um, say, large breasts for... 20, 30 years and has not, no issues with it other than some minor back aches that needs the procedure but isn't in a hurry to have it done. Mm. Yep, yep. And would the same go for something like a rhinoplasty? Like where, where would mm. that sit in? Yeah, so rhinoplasty um, in terms of categorization is usually a category three. That is, it can wait. However, I think there are more urgent rhinoplasties and more non-urgent rhinoplasties. So that probably falls within the functional versus the cosmetic rhinoplasties. There are those patients who have breathing issues and sometimes very severe breathing issues. And oxygen is kind of important to life, um, as I say to patients. So those patients who are suffering from uh, migraines, um, snoring, um, can't exercise, can't breathe properly, they, their urgency would climb up the ladder a little bit more. And so I would have no hesitation in um, doing those procedures, um, especially now with the lift of restriction on category two and more urgent category three patients um, in doing those patients who have functional issues. Yep. Yep. That, that, that makes so much sense. All right. So then, so you, you, you've um, booked in for your surgery, day of the surgery, um, comes can mm. you tell us like like how long a rhinoplasty would take or well, you can't really because it would depend 
what somebody needs. Is that right? Like how, how do you yeah. work out your, your surgery list? Like someone might come in for what you think would be like a 30 minute, I don't even know if that's the right time, <laughs> like an hour or two hour run of and then you yeah. might end up being more hours. Like yeah, yeah. you can't know you until you get Look, in there. That, that, that's, a, that's such a, a great, great topic for discussion is the duration of rhinoplasty because for procedures such as say breast augmentation i know for sure that i'm not going to be more than an hour in every case but for rhinoplasty i have an estimate that my primary rhinoplasties are usually around three hours or so when it's a secondary revisional surgery they can be up to six and even more time required for the operation but primary procedures as an estimate i'd say to patients around three hours plus or minus half an hour. Um, the reason for that is that in some circumstances, such as a post-traumatic nose, you will go in and find things that you have not clearly defined in your physical examination just in the office, and even with an endoscope looking in, because I do that with some patients in the office looking with a telescope. Um, you come across maybe uh, a break in the bone that, uh, that was... Um, just an intraoperative finding, or there's instabilities, or there's bits of cartilage missing. Um, so I think run place is one of those procedures where you, you just have to allow that extra time available to get things right. Um, because you can have some unexpected findings, not, not common, but occasionally, but in general, it's around a three hour uh, procedure for my primary rhinoplasties. Yeah, wow, that, that, that's, um, that's a long time. <laughs> so, well, sometimes if it's a purely cosmetic procedure, um, it, it's a couple of hours um, yeah. and sometimes even less than that, depending on what they need, really. Of course. And, and I was going to ask you, so then someone's had the procedure, like is it day procedure or do, mm. does it depend on the person? Like is it always in and out on the same day? Because like I, I had a nose job about 22 years ago. Mine was purely aesthetic and um i just got rid of a little bump and brought my nostrils in a little bit and um i can remember i was in there for a lot like quite a few days but i don't it's not like that anymore is it no 85 percent to 90 percent of my patients are done as day cases um and they 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 do fine the ones that stay in overnight are the much more extensive, we're talking maybe four or five hour primary rhinoplasties, most revisional cases, um, even re with revision rhinoplasties, it's usually the patients who require a rib cartilage that will stay in overnight and they will not stay in more than just overnight. And for the rib harvest patients, they stay in overnight for a couple of reasons. Number one is the duration of surgery. If it's long surgery, they've had a long anesthetic so I prefer to keep them in overnight for observation. And number two, they have a little bit more discomfort, especially from the rib harvest site. So we'll keep them in for pain relief. Uh, but these patients will definitely go home the next day. Um, for most primary rhinoplasties, they're done as day cases because most patients do prefer their own bed and comfort of home. And they do fine with the medications that we're given. They're not in a lot of pain or discomfort. Um, I have a splint on the outside of the nose. I don't pack the nose. I have a couple of silicone splints inside the nose and that's it. Um, patients go home on painkillers, antibiotics, um, some ointment to put on their wound and um, that's about it. And they come back a week after to have the splints taken off and the stitches removed. 
Okay, so because um, I remember when when I had my nose job, I can just remember one like I don't know what day it was and all that, but um, uh, like one day, like just a massive blood clot came out, and after that, it was all like great, and I could breathe again. Is that like normal? <laughs> Uh, that can occur sometimes. If you have um, some bleeding and the blood clot develop on the inside, that can occur. Um, it's not common. That's not normal. Oh, uh, I wondered about that. Yeah. <laughs> no, that, that would be, uh, no, that, that's, that's not normal. Um, but it, it can occur. If you have a blood clot there that wasn't sucked out properly at the end of the case or developed um, in the co post-operative course, um, it, it, it might just fall out at some stage. Sometimes a little blood clot will come out when we take the internal splints out, um, but we wouldn't expect there to be a blood clot there further down the track uh, beyond the one-week mark. Got it, got it. And, okay, so, so people go home on the same day, you give them their painkillers. Is there any instructions as well? Because, because, like, I had a little baby at the time and I can just <laughs> remember it took about, a year for if someone didn't touch my nose or whatever, or I could just seriously saw stars in my eyes because mm. it was so painful. When uh -huh. my baby um, hit me on the, on the nose, I thought I was yeah. going to die. <laughs> yeah. So, so the things we advise patients is when they go home, obviously um, <clears throat> with all their medications, keep their head elevated as much as they can. That doesn't mean sleeping, sitting up. It just means propping yourself up on a few pillows. So every time you dip your head down, all the pressure will rush towards your head and you'll feel your nose becoming a little bit more swollen. It's just to help with swelling. Um, the amount of swelling and bruising really depends on, number one, the extent of surgery, whether there's been any breaking of bones, um, use of cartilage grafts, um, and how, how many elements of the nose were addressed. And also, very importantly, the thickness of the skin of the nose. In thin skin patients, I find that they heal up much quicker and the amount of swelling and bruising resolves a lot quicker than those patients with thick skin. You will feel that the tip of your nose will be numb for up to six to 12 months. And in, in my uh, patients, I will tell them that the tip of their nose will feel a bit stiff for up to a year or two. And that is because I actually support the tip quite, quite strongly because I, want, I don't want it to move post-operatively, uh, which is a risk um, in rhinoplasty. Um, but uh, after about, in terms of recovery, I'd say most patients can go back to work after a couple of weeks if they don't do rigorous type activities. In terms of exercises, it's usually four to six weeks. And exercising restriction is not so much that they're gonna damage the nose, it's whenever you raise your heart rate and raise your blood pressure, blood will rush into your nose and it will cause the swelling to get worse. And then, you know, you, that sets your recovery back. At the one week mark, when we take all the stitches out, the cast off, I will usually start taping the nose and I'll teach the patient how to tape the nose as well. And the tape is like a bra to your nose. It helps with swelling and it helps to shape the final um, configuration of the nose. Okay. And, and so how long do you reckon, because everything stays in and then a week later they come and you take out the splints and you take out the stitches and then they go back home and they may or may not be off the painkillers then, would that be right? Or 
Yeah, um, they, they'll probably still, they'll taper off their painkillers after a week um, because once the splints are out, they can usually breathe much better. They may still have some discomfort, but pain is really not a word used by a lot of my rhinoplasty patients. Um, it's really during that first one to two weeks that they may need something more than Panadol. But beyond that, they just need some regular analgesics such as um, uh, Nurofen or Panadol. And after about three weeks, most patients are off all their painkillers. They don't need anything because the healing would have, a lot of the healing would have taken place by then. Yeah. Honestly, I can't remember being in pain. I just remember, you know, when someone hit my nose, when the baby hit my nose and that was it. But you're right. I don't remember any pain. And just... Mm. Just one other thing. So, so how long do you reckon, like if someone was working, how long do you reckon before they could go back to work? Say if they had an office job, like it wasn't yep. a lab job, but they had an office job. When do you reckon they could go back to work? Two weeks. Two weeks. Okay. Yep. Some people will go back after a week. Once they've had the splints off, I put the tapes on. The tape's semi-transparent, so it's not that obvious. And as long as they don't mind, people are saying, what's that tape on your nose? Then they can go back to work. But two weeks is safe. Um, for an office work. Yeah. So funny because I had my surgery on a Thursday and I was back at work on a Monday. But Absolutely. I had the, Absolutely. Yeah, I know. But I had the full... Um, I don't know what, what... Yeah, I had a cast on my nose. Yeah. Do you... Do, is cast still something that you do or...? or? Um, I don't put a full big cast on. I have a, a small um, plastic splint on, on the nose only. It's about three by four centimetres, it's small, and the two splints go inside the nose. So there's not a big cast on, it's just a plastic splint that goes over the nose itself. Got it. Um, and how long do you reckon before, like, before someone would be like fully recovered? Like, you know, like, yep, that, that's done. And Because I know that, it, like I'm, in my day, the doctor said it takes about a year for your nose to, you know. Yeah, that, that's, a, that's a true statement. It takes about a year for the final swelling and scarring to resolve and even up to two years for some cases such as revisional rhinoplasties, the nose continues to change. Mm -hmm. So patients should not get um, too concerned if the shape of the nose is not what they were expecting. Even at six weeks or at six months, they could still change up to a year. However, in terms of, yep, it's healed pretty well by about six weeks, that's, that's, that's pretty much stabilized. Um, your wounds are healed. Um, your grafts are stable. The stitches that are used on the inside of the nose are starting to kind of dissolve. Um, but the final shape in terms of the swelling, the scarring coming down probably takes up to six to 12 months, depending on the thickness of the skin and the extent of the surgery. Yep. And my doctor said to me at the time, he said, um, you know, you got to, you know, if, if you're not happy with it within the two year mark, just come back and I'll do it for you again. And of course, I, I never went back because I was like, no, I don't want to do that again. And I was happy with my nose anyway. Yeah. But um, in because the last thing, like, I, I was really scared of him taking too much of my nose away, if that makes any sense. So yeah. that's why he said, better to err on the side of, you know, less is more. And that way, if we need to go in again, we can. Mm, Do mm. you use the same philosophy? Is that like a, like, like a normal thing? I absolutely agree with that. And it is um, very, such a wise thing for him to have said that many years ago, because I think we went through 
a phase in the era of rhinoplasty whereby we were resecting or taking out too much because everyone wanted a tiny little cute nose. Um, and then we reflect back on it and we thought, gee, that's really taking out too much. It's a bit unnatural because a good looking nose is not a tiny nose. It's just a nose that's proportional to the patient's face and structure and height and facial um, shape. So these days I do err on being more conservative. Um, I don't want to give patients an operator or a rhinoplasty appearance, but I do say, for example, the, the bridge of the nose, I don't want it to be um, too curved or too scooped out. I just want a straight nose with a bit of a pop towards the tip and, and that's it. It is so true what um, your surgeon said that you can always go back in to take more out because if you've taken more out and if you needed to add back more, that's a much more difficult job than to take out more. Mm -hmm. And he said exactly the same thing as I said to him. I want a little Australian nose. I want the little, you know, I want it small and I want a little dip on the end. And he right. said, uh, I'm sorry, but I'm not doing that. You're Italian. Mm -hmm. I'll leave you with a Roman nose. I'll just make it smaller. So although I was upset, mm. years later, I could see where someone had actually had the wrong nose for their face. So I, I think there was a phase of that happening. So I know exactly what you mean. Yeah, yeah. Awesome. Well, I've got to say, that's been so interesting. I, I, um, I, I want a nose job now. <laughs> no, I don't really. <laughs> Definitely makes you think, though, because it's true. A lot of people are out there having breathing problems and not even realizing that that is something that can be fixed. And I know myself that if you're not getting enough oxygen in, it's not good for your whole well-being anyway. So sometimes maybe you do need to look a little bit further than what, you know, what you've looked. Yeah. Yeah. And, and that's when, I, when patients come back for the reviews, whether it be at six weeks or six months, that's the thing that I love hearing the most. I mean, I can see when they're walking through the door, how their nose looks. But when I ask them if their breathing's improved and they say it's changed their life, um, that's, that's a home run for me. Yeah, totally. And um, I think um, that's, uh, that's such an important part of uh, rhinoplasty. Yep, that, that, I totally agree with you 100%. Well, that's been so interesting. One last question. Um, tell me about your um, consults at the moment. How much are they, the, the um, teleconsults for anyone who... Oh, um, so it, it, it depends on what type of consult it is, but for cosmetic type procedures, um, such as rhinoplasty, uh, breast and body work, it's 200. And um, obviously if you have a referral, um, you can have a rebate from that. Fantastic, awesome. Well, look, I've got to say, thank you so much for taking the time to talk to us today, Dr. Go. That's been really um, enlightening. You always think you know so much and then you chat with um, someone who's a master of their craft and you think, ah, oh, I just learned one more thing. Thanks, Trish. It's been my pleasure. Thank you again for your thank, time. Thank you so much. And listeners, look, if, you, if you're after Dr. Um, wanting to speak to Dr. Go, you can contact the amazing team at Valley Plastic Surgery. They're based in Brisbane and you can just um, look them up, valleyplasticsurgery.com.au. Otherwise, you can send me an email to info at, at sorry, to trish at plasticsurgeryhub.com.au. Thank you so much, Dr. Go. Thank you, Trish. Stay thank safe. You. Take care. Bye. Bye. The Plastic Surgery Hub podcast, connecting people with practitioners. For more information, visit plasticsurgeryhub.com.au or email info at plasticsurgeryhub.com.au.
The material provided in this podcast is general information and does not constitute medical advice, nor is it a substitute for consultation and advice from your own practitioner. It should not be used to diagnose or treat any medical illness. Any medical or surgical decision should be made in consultation with your own doctor or practitioner and not based on the materials provided in this podcast.